Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be God, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of our Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. And we know that it's possible to hear it improperly because even the devil can quote the scriptures. So we pray that today as we try to listen well, we would hear your voice. And when we hear it, uh, that we would listen, obey, uh, sur- surrender to your good will for us. Uh, we pray that you would bless the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they'd be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you've uh, heard a few times already, we are in the season of, of Lent. And uh, I, uh, I think it's important to remember, to remind ourselves, that the goal of Lent is actually Easter Sunday. <laughs> right? This is a season of preparation uh, so that we're ready to live what it means to say that Jesus is crucified and risen from the dead. I mean, even now, we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, ascended to heaven's throne. That's the truest conditions of our lives. Now, whatever else is going on, we live in a world in which Jesus is crucified, risen, and reigning. And as much as that might stretch our imagination. The problem for us isn't generally like saying it or even believing it intellectually. The problem is mostly moving that reality from our heads to our hearts. It's letting it shape our whole selves, be the defining reality in the midst of so much noise competing to define us and the way things are. And, And moving from our heads to our hearts might be an especially challenging thing in a place like this. Uh, We're on a campus whose motto is uh, uh, a place of mind, right? And so we can be seduced into believing that what really matters is what we think. Uh, We are thoughtful, reasonable, rational people. We don't check our brains at the doors of the sanctuary, right? 
We're told that if we know better, we'll do better, which for those of us who are highly educated and know lots of things is, is an enticing flattery. But one thing I'm pretty sure I know as well as anything is that it's mostly not true. <laughs> you know, we vastly overestimate the power of what we think to change our behavior. We vastly overestimate the power of what we think to change our behavior. Sometimes we learn something and change, and obviously I'd never advocate for ignorance as a way of life, but life always seems to outpace our best intentions. Now, we have more information available to us at a click of a button now than anyone else in history, <laughs> any other time in history, and I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that that fact alone is making us more human, making us more truly alive. I mean, there's a reason that St. Paul's confession from 2,000 years ago in the letter to the Romans still rings true, that he does what he doesn't want to do and doesn't do what he does want to do. There's a reason that we start our services with a time of confession, because we know it's not a matter of knowing what to do, it's a matter of doing it. It's a head problem, not a heart, or it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. And the church has always known this. The, the, we've always known that the Christian faith is foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul puts it. And by Greeks, he means those who believe that having the right philosophy of life is what will save us. We say ridiculous things in a world that thinks it can say, think itself to health and wholeness. Now, the, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks, Paul says, and then he continues, but for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the key here, I think, is this idea of being saved. I don't mean saved from, from hell when we die. I mean saved from hell while we're alive. Saved from life lived as if we are the high mark of what's possible. Saved from lies about who we are and what makes us valuable. Saved from the anxieties and pressures of a world that wants to reduce us to units of productivity. Saved from rhythms of life that detract from our humanity instead of helping us live into the fullness of the God-bearing image that we're made in. Saved from clinging to things that are fleeting and fading away and missing out on the good stuff that's eternal. Saved from momentary distractions and empty promises about what will make us happy. The Bible talks about salvation in, in all three tenses, past, present, and future. Right? The theologian Karl Barth, when he was, whenever he was asked when he was saved, which is a, a favorite question of some people, uh, he would say something like, uh, it was on a Friday, somewhere around AD 33 on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Because that's absolutely true. Right? We have been saved by the grace of God through the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. Paul says that we have been rescued, past tense, we have been rescued from the dominion of evil and brought into the kingdom of Christ. We are saved. And we will be saved, right? The biblical vision is of all the nations of the world gathered around the throne of the Lamb who says, Behold, I make all things new. That day when every tear will be wiped away and every hungry belly will be filled and the songs of heaven will fill every corner of the world. That's where things are heading. That's, that's the true future, the ultimate future. But it's a future that's invading the present and it's a past that's still being shaped Right now, we are being saved here and now. And that's the process of moving what we know or believe intellectually in our heads to our hearts. It's the work of spiritual formation. 
as the church calls it. I heard someone say recently that that there's only intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation. There is no neutrality when it comes to our spirits. Everything shapes us in one way or another. There is only intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation. And that fact has been wreaking havoc on me (laughs) since I I heard it. (laughs) Holy havoc. But uh, I I don't know that I've ever thought about it quite so, so bluntly. And it wreaks havoc on me because it demands that we, we ask whether the things we do, you know, at work or in our free time, when we're alone or with others, at home and in the world, in classrooms and checkout lines, are these things lining up with what we affirm on Sundays? Are they making us more like Jesus or more like something else, forming us in another way? Does it nurture in us the fruit of the Spirit. We did not plan this. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Incidentally, that's how I get Kate to do things, too. I just (laughs) just mess it up enough times, and she comes along and rescues me. (laughs) You know, are we letting that fruit grow in us, or are we succumbing to some easier temptation, (laughs) like greed and anger, or power and self-satisfaction, or fickleness and efficiency? You know, in the wisdom of the church, uh, Lent gives us this annual season of deep intention. We have these 40 days that mirror Israel's formative years in the wilderness and Jesus' 40 days of fasting and intimacy with God at the beginning of his ministry, what we just heard. I want to pay attention, first of all, to the fact that Jesus needs this time of intense preparation with the Father in order to be fully prepared to live into his calling and purpose. He needed it to be who he is. And if Jesus needs this kind of attention, I think it's fair to say that we probably do too. Jesus spends 40 days uh, attending to the leading of the Spirit. We heard it's the Spirit who leads him, leads him into the, the wilderness, growing in holy dependence on the Godhead. This is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit spending unhurried time together. 40 days, just the three of them. The more I think about it, the more beautiful it is. The wilderness, of course, can be a place of danger and uncertainty and and barrenness. That's maybe what we think of when we think of wilderness. But it's also a place of freedom and formation. When Israel is rescued out of slavery, they're, they're led to the wilderness. That's where they come to know what it means that this God is their God, that they are God's people. If they're, It's where they're formed to be a light to the nation. Revealing the rhythms and ways of the God who sets captives free and is making all things new. The uncertainty of the wilderness is the condition in which the people learn to trust the God who has redeemed them. What it means to be a free people. It's the place where their true identity is formed. That's what we see happening in Jesus as he spends his 40 days in the wilderness. And what if we didn't imagine him like emaciated with hunger and uh, eager to get back to the safety and familiarity of the things he knows? What if we didn't imagine him full of dread, as our first hymn puts it? But what if we imagined him delighting in this time of intention, free from the pressing of crowds, free from the expectations and demands of the world, free just to spend time with God, leisurely growing in trust and confidence in his God-revealing identity? What if it's more spiritual retreat than spiritual torment? (laughs) I I think it's more accurate. 
I mean, of course, there's the temptation part, which is an invariable part of every spiritual life. It usually happens when we're tired and hungry. Sometimes a snack and a nap is a legitimate form of spiritual formation. But let's acknowledge the fact that the temptations aren't really that interesting. (laughs) I'd even go so far as to say they're kind of boring. The devil's just not that creative, frankly. Jesus is tempted with power and prestige and wealth. Whoopee, you know. Add in sex and you've got all the temptations, the tired temptations most of us are faced with every day. The temptations are boring, but I'll give the devil his due. His tactic is crafty. He goes after who Jesus is. He wants him to, the strategy is to get Jesus to prove himself. Now, this story comes right on the heels of Jesus' baptism, where the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended, and the voice came and said, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And what are the devil's first words? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Now, what's at stake is whose voice Jesus will trust. Will it be the Father who loves him eternally and delights in him, or the the tempter who wants him to prove it? This is Jesus, I think, at his most fully human, facing the deep question we all face. Will we trust what God says about us, that we are God's children and heirs, that we are ambassadors of God's kingdom, that we are created for love and enjoyment with God and to love the things that God loves? Or will we believe something else about ourselves? And here's the problem. If that question remains at an intellectual level, in the level of our minds, we might know the answer, but there's a a, better than good chance that we'll live a different one. We need that knowledge to move from our head to our hearts. We need it not as theological information, but as the experiential of love that the, or knowledge that the Bible talks about, which is always much more intimate. You know, when Genesis says that Adam knew his wife Eve, that doesn't mean that he could now give an objective presentation about her. Right? When the psalmist calls us to be still and know that God is God, we're not getting ready to write a paper about all of God's attributes. We're being invited into a relational reality that is deeper and more expansive than we could ever know by cool, objective reason. When the devil says to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, it doesn't send him into an existential crisis because he knows the one who calls him Son. He knows that voice more deeply and more intimately than any other. Even when the devil quotes scripture, uh, he's able to know that it's the right words, but it's the wrong voice. Right? And there isn't a moment where he needs to wonder who he is because he's spent so much time uh, resting in God's presence. Resting in God's goodness, pouring out his heart and his doubts, I'm sure. I have to imagine that there must have been some conversations about whether this cross thing was really a good idea. He's also learning the freedom of saying, not my will, but yours be done. And then we see that what St. James tells us is true. Resist the devil and he will flee. (laughs) Evil's cowardly. Can't stand up to the power and presence of God. It can rant and rave and cause all sorts of mess, but at the end of the day, it's just a child throwing a tantrum. And I love the way the story ends. The devil left him, and the angels attended him. That's a pretty good trade, right? (laughs) The devil left him, and the angels attended him. And it's a trade we get to make, too. From the cowardliness, the paucity, the anti-creative, lifeless, rusting and rotting of evil for the wonder and provision of heaven's kingdom. 
I don't know about you, but I know which one I want. (laughs) I want to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that everything else will be added. I want to become the answer to our prayers that God's kingdom would come on earth as in heaven and trust that if we live into that, then God will provide our daily bread and will lead us through the temptations and lies of the evil one. And that's why I want to take Lent seriously this year. Why I want to indulge this gift of the church. Enter into that space of intentional spiritual formation with Jesus. And I confess I haven't always taken Lent that seriously. As as someone who's, who's generally inclined to lean pretty heavily into the promise that we're saved by grace and grace alone, that there's nothing we can do to earn it, I haven't always recognized the deepness, the deep gift of this wilderness time which is the invitation to go further, to wade further into God's grace. Not to prove anything, but to wade further into God's grace. I want to swim in the deep end of God's grace, right? I heard someone say recently that the church is too often like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end, right? The invitation of Lent is to move in deep. So I want to offer a challenge to you. Take full advantage of this time in our church calendar. The nice thing about Lent is that it is time-bound, right? You don't have to do something forever. Even Jesus had to eat eventually. If we spend too long in the deep end at one time, it's going to get dicey. But of course, the more time we spend in the deep end, the longer we can stay there, the stronger we get. Doing something intentionally spirit-forming through this season will have effects far beyond the next 40 days. And if it sounds overwhelming, I I have a suggestion. It's not actually my suggestion. I'm stealing it from a pastor named Tyler Staten. Um, And he says that we all need downstream and upstream spiritual disciplines. The the downstream ones are those ones that help you easily feel closer to God, right? It's sitting in the inner tube and letting the current carry you along. (laughs) Maybe it's being in nature, hiking, or or if you're more introverted, maybe it's just spending time in, in silence and solitude in God's presence. If you're more extroverted, maybe it's spending time with those people who delight you, who, who nurture you spiritually, who, who uh, help you grow. Uh, a spiritual practice, a legitimate spiritual practice might be to set time aside with those people. Go on dates with the people you love and grow in gratitude for them. Maybe you just want to, oh, <laughs> I'm going to give these out. I meant to ask the kids to give them out. We can just pass them around. Maybe you want to just keep one of these in your pocket for the next 40 days. And every time you feel it, offer a a prayer of praise or um, a petition or just give thanks for God's presence. Maybe your downstream is creating something or reading a good book or cooking or playing with some kids that you love. Whatever it is, set extra time aside over the next 40 days, next six weeks or so, to do those things intentionally letting them draw your attention more and more to God who made you and loves you and wants to give you those good gifts that will satisfy your soul. God wants to give you good gifts that will satisfy your soul and we need that stuff that is easy and refreshing. And we need upstream disciplines as well. If there's never any resistance, we don't grow. Our muscles atrophy. We need intentional practices that stretch us, that push us to trust God more, to know God more deeply, to live for God more fully. And you might know right away what that could be for you, uh, what an upstream spiritual practice might be. Or you might want to 
pray that God would just show you uh, what might help build you up this time, in this season. I thought I would share what I'm doing. I didn't answer uh, when Aaron asked because, uh, well, I wouldn't have anything to say now, but <laughs> um, I thought I'd share what I'm going to do this, this time around just to, maybe it'll be helpful. Uh, so th- this season I'm committing uh, to spending time in devotion is the very first thing and the very last thing I do. Uh, along with our community devotional, and before I start scrolling and checking my email and looking through my schedule, I'm going to be using this app, or, and before I go to sleep, the last thing I do before I go to sleep, I'm going to be using this app called Lectio 365, which offers these uh, kind of guided meditations. And I like that they're guided. You know, I don't have to do any thinking about this. It's just available to me. I, I'm going to use those morning and night. That's my downstream. That's, that stuff, that's relatively easy for me. My upstream is that I'm going to fast on Fridays. <laughs> I, I was going to journal, but I'm terrible at journaling, and I don't really like it. And, you know, so uh, maybe next year, if I'm more spiritually strong, I'll do that. But so this year, I'm going to fast. Uh, nothing too serious. I have a medication I have to take in the morning with a bit of food. So I'm going to fast from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, and I'm starting simply because I, I've never been very good at fasting either. Uh, you know, I'm a growing boy. I need my calories. But there's never been a time in church history when fasting hasn't been an important spiritual discipline. Uh, Jesus and the saints all seem to think it's important. So I'm going to give it a shot and just see what happens. I'll be fasting on my Sabbath. So, so that's, that's the invitation. Pick two things that will draw you closer to God, a downstream and an upstream, and do those things with intention for the next six weeks, and it'll be (laughs) life-changing. Do things that will help you know that you are God's beloved and live more joyfully into the pleasure of that knowledge. May it be so. Amen.